you can tell, but I've been fighting my technology all morning long, so hooray for that. Um, We're going to be in John 20, the end of John 20. We're going to be verses 19 to 31, and we're going to just cover uh, some big chunks there. Um, We're almost at the end of our series in John, which uh, on the one hand, I'm really excited for what's next. What we're going to tackle next is uh, we're going to do a study around a book uh, that I actually read last year called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And we're going to talk about the, maybe the biggest enemy of our souls, which you might think is uh, a whole bunch of different things, but which the author of that book makes the, the claim is hurry, that we have a hurry sickness and that hurry is killing our souls. And so we're going to study that for about three weeks and then we'll be to Advent. But before we get to that, so next week we'll finish John and then on the 31st, uh, we will kind of have like a global awareness day, so kind of, because uh, Teo and hopefully myself will be back from Ecuador. Um, we'll be back on the, the weekend before that, but just to give a breather of space, uh, we're going to do this on the 31st. And then also uh, the Gallery Church from Patterson Park, who some of you may remember, we did a three-week Wednesday night uh, thing called Healthy Conversations between people of different backgrounds of uh, I was in one of the three, and I was the only native-born kind of, you know, American in the room, and that was really fascinating, and so there were some really good conversations about what immigration uh, has meant for these folks and what that means to their lives, and so on the 31st, we're going to hopefully hear some stories from Ecuador, uh, and we're going to hear from the Gallery Church, and then I want to play you a couple of videos from the Night of Generosity that the Alliance just had that also share some stories from what's going on around the world, because as an Alliance Church, we have a a vision for the globe, right? It's part of our logo, if you didn't know it, is the background is the world, because uh, we believe that's part of who we are. So that's what's happening uh, over the next few weeks, and then we'll be into that series, and then we'll be into Advent, and then it's Christmas, and oh my gosh, it's a new year, and it's crazy. But today we're going to cover the rest of chapter 20 of the Gospel of John. We started this chapter last weekend, uh, looking at verses 1 to 18, Uh, Now, you're going to notice that as we get there, I'm not going to spend a ton of time focusing on Thomas, okay? I know doubting Thomas, it's a whole thing, and and you've probably heard that, Lord Thomas, I'll focus on you after the service, Um, but we're going to, we're not skipping it, but we're going to emphasize other parts of this part of the Gospel of John, Uh, and so I'm going to read from John 19 to 31, and then... Uh, we're going to dive into it here. So this is John 19, sorry, John 20, verses 19 to 21. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. 
Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, I I just love, side note, don't tell God you're never going to believe unless he does something because then he's just going to do it. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those, now here blessed are you in this room, who have not seen and yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, so I'm going to give you a little bit of kind of movie-making knowledge. Now, you've probably, maybe you know this, you've probably heard this before, but uh, when you're watching a movie or a TV show, uh, a lot of times they'll start out, especially like I'm noticing now that my daughter is kind of getting into these movies, especially like 90s kids' films, right? Like Beethoven is a classic. You guys remember that one? She started playing it, and like three seconds into the intro music, I recognized it. It was like, what's Beethoven playing? And I didn't believe that I recognized it, but I did when I got around the corner and was like, man, that movie is like in there deeper than I thought it was. So in a lot of these movies, right, the first thing you'll see is like a real wide shot of like a town or maybe a house. And in the movie-making world, we call that an establishing shot. You might hear that in TV, right? Maybe if it's going to be a scene in a house, first you'll see like a wide angle shot of the outside of the house. Sitcoms are famous for this too. They always play that cheesy little bit of music and you see the outside of the house and then it cuts to the inside where you see they're like sitting at the kitchen table having the same fight they've been having for eight seasons, but you watch anyway because you love it. Um, So this is what John is doing here at the beginning of this section today. He's giving you kind of an establishing shot. The first phrase of verse 19 is that establishing shot, if you will, of this section. So what do we see? Well, we see that John is showing us that the events that are going to happen in 19 to 23 took place on the day when Jesus rose from the dead. It's the evening of that same day of where we were just a couple verses before. So we know it's the same day that John was talking about in that last little section of chapter 20. But then John goes on to give us more insight into this scene. Okay, so he sets it up. They're in the room. Now he tells us, why are they in this room with the doors locked? They're in this room because of the fear of the Jews, which has caused the disciples to hide behind and lock the doors. They're scared. Now, one of the running themes in John's gospel is his use of the phrase, the Jews. Now, what does John mean though, right? Because obviously the disciples, John himself, Jesus, are Jews. So John must mean something specific by this phrase that he uses actually over 70 times in this gospel. He uses this phrase a ton. One thing we can do is figure out his meaning based on its usage, right? That's a Bible study technique. And in this verse, what we can figure out is that the Jews are a group of people that the disciples fear, right? The fear of the Jews would lead us to believe, well, there's a specific group of people that they're afraid of. Uh, and, And so One of the primary features that characterizes this group that John calls the Jews here in John is their unbelief. 
which makes the conversation he has with Thomas a little bit later interesting, where he says, don't disbelieve, but believe. Why? That's a characteristic of this category of people, the Jews, uh, is their unbelief, willing unbelief even, to take it further. Like they're willfully, we don't want to believe because we are against, opposed to Jesus. They are, have made themselves enemies of Jesus. And so in John, this puts the Jews as categorically opposed to what Jesus is and therefore his disciples in this book. And so in this case, in John 20, verse 19, the Jews is almost certainly referring to the Jewish authorities who played a part in the death of Jesus. Um, So these disciples are fearful. Why? They just put their widely popular rabbi to death. What are they going to do to them? I mean, so they're afraid. Not only because of their guilt by association, but because they are now going to be the number one suspects and who stole the body from the tomb since we don't believe in the resurrection of the body from the dead. But then John goes on and, and, and the story kind of takes a turn because Jesus shows up and, and see this as kind of a, a metaphor for our lives as well. Jesus shows up and the story changes. The story takes a turn when Jesus comes through the locked door on the scene. So now in verse 19, John tells us they're in the room, afraid, the door's locked, and Jesus just stood among them. Crazy. And he speaks what? Right? He speaks peace to them. Now, again, don't let the familiarity you might have with this story, uh, if, you, if you have a church background, lead you to not really like get yourself into it and deal with what's going on here. Think about how startling that is. You just saw this man executed. Somebody comes and tells you, hey, the tomb is empty. And then he just like shows up in the room. Right? Pretty startling stuff. And so, again, this is the establishing shot we started with. That, that this is the situation we're in. These guys are, think about the emotional state you might be in. Think about the mental state you might be in. They're reeling from this news that the body is gone and then there's Jesus. And he... And he He's in their midst, not as a corpse, right? That the body doesn't show up. Jesus is standing there somehow, even though, again, the doors are closed, right? Now, that wouldn't be the first question I would ask, but it probably would be a question eventually. I'd be like, wait a minute. I know you were dead and then you're alive, but how'd you get through the locked door, right? I, I, that's how my brain would work. And again, we see this as we saw last week as well, but John depicts Jesus here, uh, the resurrected, glorified Jesus as somebody who last week, as we saw in the text right before, got mistaken for a gardener. So he doesn't get mistaken for some angelic being. We have no indication that he's got, got a glow around him. It's just Jesus. And when he speaks, he's recognized by his disciples. They, they, they hear his voice and they know it. And so we see that Jesus hasn't lost his humanity in the, in, the, in the crucifixion and then the resurrection. And Jesus even now has not lost his humanity. He's not some other kind of being now. He's still fully human and fully God. He doesn't take the incarnation off, which we're about to study as we get to Advent, right? And so on the one hand, um, we see Jesus full Humanity, which means a lot and is important to us because it means that the resurrection from the dead, the bodily resurrection from the dead is totally possible 
and is going to happen for those of us who are in Jesus by faith and that we don't lose our humanity on that day either. Like you're not becoming an angel in heaven, right? You're still going to be you. What's that going to mean? I don't know. Jesus still had scars. He's still a human, so all that stuff is true. But then also, Jesus has the ability to walk through a locked door somehow. So what, that means something about his glorified body. On the one hand, this shouldn't be shocking, since Jesus has defied what is normal all through this gospel. He's been doing this all along, right? Multiplying food, walking on water, chapter 6. He gave sight to a man born blind, chapter 9. And of course, remember Lazarus, who he spoke to, and he came out of the grave. But still, it's, it's startling. It's startling for these disciples. Now, most of these disciples had seen Jesus last right before they abandoned him. They fled as he was being arrested. And so what would you, if that was you, what would you expect Jesus' first words to you to be? I mean, if it's me, I'm expecting rebuke, reprimand, maybe like, uh, here I am, guys, all right? Like some kind of some kind of frustration from Jesus, but that's not what Jesus does. And it's not what Jesus does when he enters into our brokenness either, is it? He, he doesn't hold any grudges. He, he doesn't accuse anyone of anything. He doesn't rehearse how they have failed over and over. Instead, he does then, what he still does today is he enters in, he steps into the middle of a mess and he speaks peace. And that's what Jesus is still doing today. He simply announces to them what he has purchased by his own blood, the peace that we needed, not only between us and God, but between us and one another as well. And Jesus is saying, peace. So Jesus, this peace that he's announcing, has come by his absorption onto himself, the wrath of God, what we call the atonement or, or propitiation would be kind of the Bible theology word for, right? It means Jesus took onto himself the wrath that we deserved from the Father. He crushed the head of the serpent that we know about from Genesis 1. He absorbs the sting of death. He goes through death on our behalf. And then he opens up on the other side of that, the gate of life for us to walk through by faith in him and his death and resurrection. And so because of this death and resurrection of Jesus, the risen Jesus can speak this peace to those that know him. And he is still speaking that peace now through his body the church. Now, Jesus doesn't just speak peace into their hearts and leave their minds wandering. He also speaks this peace into their heads as well by what he does next in verse 20. I want to point out the holistic nature of the peace that Jesus speaks. Look at verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Right? This is to help their heads. He says, peace I speak to you. Now look, I'm for real. This really Happen. He's spoken, spoken the peace to calm their hearts, and now he shows them the, the hands and his side to verify for them that indeed he did suffer in the body, which is what they saw, right? But that now he'd been raised in the body, which is important. He's not some ghost. He's not a, a phantom. He, this is Jesus in the body that he suffered in being raised in the same body. And so, this, 
is so vital for our faith. This little mention of these wounds is not by accident here in John. It, it, it means that the resurrection is bodily for him and it will be for us. It's not a metaphor. Right? And, and so if you've lost a loved one that knew Jesus, you can know that they will be resurrected from the dead in their body. I don't know how that's going to work, but it's going to work. And then we see the response that the resurrection truth elicits. This is the response that when you trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus happens. John just told us in the sentence before this that they were all scared, right? Verse 19, they're all scared. They're behind a locked door. But now what we see is that their fears of the Jews are gone. Jesus shows up in their mess. He speaks peace and their anxiety about the corpse of Jesus is gone. Their fear of the Jews is gone. He has spoken peace to their hearts, and he has proven the resurrection to their heads. And what do they do? They are glad. They rejoice. So everything changes. And then in verse 21, he speaks peace to them again. But now he adds an element of purpose to this peace. Right? There's peace, and then there's purpose. And I wish I would have thought of one more P word because that would have been cool to do three, and I could have done a poem at the end, but I didn't. So he speaks peace to them in verse 21 again, but he adds this element. This is so good for us because, I mean, this is something we all, I think, humanity struggles with. You were made for a purpose. Like you, You're not here on this earth for nothing. God made you with intention and purpose to your life. From the beginning, God made us to work and to have meaning purpose in our lives. And Jesus here is giving us that purpose to the disciples and to us. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me. Even so I am sending you. Wrapped up in this sending is your purpose in this world. Having announced again to them, right? He is making sure they heard it. I almost expect him to say, truly, truly, I say to you, and yes, I can hear the kids in the back. It's fine. They're kids. All right? We love it. It's almost as if he wants to say, truly, truly, I say to you, peace, right? Like, make sure you hear this. Peace be with you. And so he announces that. He asserts then that he's sending his disciples in the same way that the Father sent him, which was what? In love. The Father sent Jesus in love, and now Jesus is sending us, his disciples, in the same way. And so in light of what he's going to say in verses 22 and 23, what I think is happening here, uh, what I want to suggest is that what Jesus is talking about here is referring most specifically to the way that the Father sent Jesus as the bearer of his presence on earth and the way that the church now is the presence of Jesus in the world. Because th this is why uh, John mentions that Jesus says that there's forgiveness of sins possible. Have you ever thought about that? I've never thought to myself to tell someone your sins are forgiven. But apparently, somehow in this exchange, Jesus is saying there, you can forgive sins. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold, they're withheld. That's... Kind of crazy, right? Is that, like, have you thought about that? Someone comes and confesses your sin, and you're like, nah, I'm withholding forgiveness. That, that's wild. And so when Jesus breathes on the disciples and tells them they've received the Holy Spirit and then tells them anyone they forgive is forgiven, 
and anyone that they don't forgive is not forgiven. He's telling the disciples that they are his now, almost his replacement for the presence of God in the world. That is your purpose on earth here if you are a believer in Jesus. The Bible calls you what? It calls you his body. It calls you a priesthood. We were once not a people, but now we are a people. We're a royal nation, a priesthood for God. We are the, the, the way that God is present in the world. And so what Jesus is doing here is telling these men that their presence is now his presence through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Listen again to verses 21 to 23. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now remember again, what we've already learned in John about the person of the spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a thing. The Holy Spirit is a person, part of the Godhead. John noted that the Spirit would not be given until Jesus was glorified back in chapter 7. And then Jesus told the disciples that if he didn't go away, the Spirit wouldn't come to them in chapter 16. And he said, it's better for you. Remember that? Because he's the helper who can be with you while I'm gone. But then what we saw is that Jesus was glorified at the cross. And because of that atonement, because of the payment for sin that that accomplished, that Jesus made at the cross, the Spirit will take up residence in this new and better temple. There is a new and better temple that is not a building, but it's people who trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And in this new temple, there are no sacrifices for sin being offered because the sacrifice of Jesus has already been made and the resurrection has proven that it has paid the bill in full. So there is now no need for an earthly temple. Jesus has spoken this peace to his disciples. You know, in some church traditions, we would say, peace be with you and then, and also with you. That isn't just talking about it's nice to see you today. That is referring to the peace that we have now with God and with one another. We were once enemies of God. We were at enmity with him. We, we thought evil thoughts about one another and God, but because of the blood of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he has made us now a temple and priests to God. We just sung this. And so he's spoken this to these disciples, that they're the men through whom those who do not yet know him will encounter God. And by spiritual lineage, if we could go all the way back, we're connected to these men in this Bible verse because they shared with someone who shared with someone and the spirit moved through the centuries and through the people and got to us. They, they are the men who by welcoming others into their family, into their fellowship, into their midst are now, are now offering through faith God's forgiveness of sin because of what Christ has accomplished for all of those who would repent and believe. They're, they're going to show the world now what Jesus is like by living as those who are filled with this spirit that Jesus just gave to them. And, and that's our calling as well. Now, again, I want to wrap up today by just touching on that very last section of this chapter where John talks about his purpose in writing this book. We've hammered on this a bunch of times but it bears repeating because John is so explicit about it here. John's purpose in this gospel has been clear right from the start, right? From the claims about Jesus that are pretty crazy in the very beginning of the book, 
which in just a few weeks we're going to start reading again because we do that at Advent. Uh, the very first beginning of the first chapter, in 1, 1 through 18, uh, and then others uh, are, are asserting the unique identity of Jesus as, his, uh, as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. We see that a little bit later on in uh, chapter 1 in, in 141, all the way to Thomas addressing Jesus here where we just saw in John 20 as Lord and Savior. The, the other important thing John has done is to portray Jesus as doing these signs, right? John says it throughout the book. He's doing these signs, and then John is asserting that life, eternal life, everlasting life, life to the full, life in the kingdom that starts now, whatever way you want to talk about it, that life only comes from believing in Jesus. And, and, and so often we live our earthly life, looking for this life in a million other ways, and we never find it because Jesus is telling us, if you want life, you find it in me. And so then what John writes in verses 30 and 31 really summarizes what he's been doing in this book the whole time. Again, let's read it. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so in verse 30, John declares that Jesus did many other signs. Remember, in John, that word signs means almost always a miracle that shows Jesus for who he is. That the signs that John has chosen for this gospel, right? John is writing this gospel and choosing what he's writing the ones he has chosen are loaded with Old Testament fulfillment themes. It's not an accident. The, the signs that are in this book are in this book. So what we can see from that is that John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has selected those signs of Jesus that best signify, literally that signify, right? That Jesus is the one that all those Old Testament prophecies were about, that's what John is trying to do. John's statement that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, is telling you not only to read the other Gospels, right? read the other stuff Jesus did, but it's also telling you, if, I believe, if you were alive in this time and you read John's letter, go talk to the other disciples. Go talk to people who saw what Jesus did. Go talk to people who aren't in this book that we have at all, who had testimonies about what Jesus did, because he did many other things that are not even written in here. So John isn't saying that his account is the only reliable account. That's not the claim John is making here. John's been selective for his purposes, for his inspired by the Holy Spirit through human means purposes, that he has an agenda stated in verse 31. He selected, he arranged the signs in this book to provoke you in the Spirit to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed king from the line of David, the, the one who has been promised over and over and over in the New Testament. John wants you to believe in this Jesus so that in believing you would find life, which is what you're looking for. But what does it mean, to wrap up, what does it mean to embrace this belief that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior that you and I need? Well, believing that Jesus is the Messiah, which means basically Savior, to believe that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, means embracing an understanding 
of the world in which we live, which it makes sense for God to promise a Messiah because a Messiah is needed, right? We're just saying, do you feel the world is broken? We do. And to embrace Jesus as Messiah is to embrace the reality that we need a Messiah because this world is not what it should be. It means embracing the reality that you and I are a part of, that this world and you and I need saving. And so this requires looking at the world and recognizing that it's broken because of human sin. It's broken because of the curse under which it was placed because of the sin of our first father, Adam, and recognizing that because God is good and loving, his posture towards the world and towards you and I is a posture that intends to heal what is broken. It's a posture that intends to show up and speak peace. The way that God chose to to bind up the world's wounds was by promising to send his own son. Jesus is this promised one. This is what John is contending in this book. And because of his death and his resurrection, those who believe this about Jesus have life in his name. So here's how we see it in John's gospel. God graciously sent Jesus. Why? Because he loved the world. John 3, 16, right? He loves the world and he loves you and I. Jesus then called people to believe in him as the one that God sent offering what? Eternal life to those whom God loves that he sent Jesus to. And then Jesus fills those who have believed with his spirit and sends them out as he was sent to do the same thing. Call others to believe in Jesus. Call others into this new everlasting full life that God has for us in Jesus. And so the the pattern is explicitly why God in his grace empowered John to write this book. So so do you see what I I hope you see in in that in God's love for you and his love for those around you, that God loves you and he loves those who are yet to believe. And the way he wants to show those who are yet to believe is by you being sent to them. Look at the lengths God goes to, right? Look at the way he does it. He'll save you in the midst of all your doubts and fears, just like the men in this story. He'll show up and speak peace to you. He'll come to you, speak peace, and then he'll empower you with his own spirit. And that's the the craziest part of all of this to me, is that he would send us as he sent Jesus. Why not just keep sending Jesus, right? Why does he send us? Why does he allow us to be part of this work? Because he loves us and he wants us to be near to him as he accomplishes what he will accomplish. It's a weak picture, but I imagine this is like when my daughter tries to help me move something heavy, which if you're a dad is the way you start and end every vacation with kids. You move a bunch of heavy stuff. Uh, And so she comes and says, dad, can I help you move this big heavy bag that weighs, you know, weighs three times as much as her. But because I want her near to me, I say, yes, come, be part of what I'm doing. And and, and in a more eternal way, this is what God is doing when he gives us the job, the work, the purpose of sharing this, of seeing his kingdom spread. He doesn't need us to do it, but he wants us to be with him as he makes all things new. So do you see that the purpose for which John wrote his gospel is actually the same purpose for which we live and speak our testimonies about Jesus in our own lives? It's the same purpose. 
Your purpose is also so that anyone listening to your life would believe in Jesus and that by believing, they would have life. Let me pray. Jesus, again, we thank you for this book that we've been walking through. And we thank you for this reality that you are the one who came to rescue us. I think of when John the Baptist asked, is there another one coming? And the answer to that is no, there is no other one coming. You are the one. And so we ask you, again, for another experience of your spirit in us that you have given us. We, We know that you've given us your spirit, but Father, we want to know that as we sung about today. We want to be aware of that. And so would you help us in that light? And I just ask that as we go out from here, as we... Uh, live our lives with the people around us who so desperately need you, that we would be, as John, we would have this purpose of, of seeing anyone who would believe in you have life. We want life for everyone around us. We ask you to, to be uh, the power that we need to, to see that happen and that we would give all glory to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.